Okay, so lesson three is entitled The Conquest Begins. We're only going to be looking at chapters five and six. There's a lot to talk about uh, here, especially regarding the conquest of Jericho, the purpose of conquering Jericho. We need to discuss harem warfare, why it is that uh, Moses uh, commanded Israel to wipe out, utterly wipe out the day. The inhabitants of the land, men, women, children, everything that breathes. Why did God allow for this? We need to talk about all that stuff. So we're only going to be talking about these two chapters. And then uh, next lesson, lesson four, we'll continue on with the rest of the conquest. So what we'd like to do first is kind of draw a connection with last lesson, where at the end of chapter four, it said specifically that the people came up out of the Jordan River. This is chapter four, verse 19. On the 10th day of the first month. Now that should be ringing alarm bells for us because that's a very important day. That is the day in which the lambs are selected for the Passover. You take the lamb on the 10th day and then you wait till the 14th day to slaughter it and celebrate this great feast. So we got a segue here uh, for the Passover because they're going to celebrate the Passover as we're going to see, but they have to do a couple of other little things first. So chapter five really, as you can see in the notes, I've entitled it really Covenant Renewals in Preparation for Battle. Israel needs to prepare for battle. They're going to start off with Jericho, then all the rest of the various cities, and they're going to attack on the north and the south and all this stuff. Jericho's first, but they got to prepare. And the way in which they prepare for battle is not what you would normally expect. They don't go out there doing their push-ups and their various military drills, and they begin, you know, taking out their weapons, sharpening their swords and all this kind of stuff, jumping jacks, et cetera, et cetera. They don't do that. They're not preparing for battle in any way in which you would expect. They prepare for battle by renewing the covenants that they have with God. That's what's happening here in chapter 5, and that's going to be a connection with Passover. So already, as we open up with chapter 5, verse 1, already we can see God is preparing Israel for victory. And what you see in chapter 5, verse 1, is that the kings of the Amorites were beyond the Jordan to the west, and the kings of the Canaanites were by the sea. They heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the sons of Israel until they had crossed over, and their hearts melted. There was no longer any spirit within them because of the sons of Israel. So word travels fast, right? Everyone's emailing and tweeting and, you know, calling each other. There, I mean, word travels fast that Israel has now crossed over the Jordan River. That was one of the purposes of that miracle, like I said in the last lesson, is to scare the daylight out of them. So here they are soiling themselves. Uh, in fact, if you compare this with what happened with Rahab, Rahab told those two spies, we heard what happened when you crossed the Red Sea. Well, that was 40 years ago. Now, this very weekend, they crossed the Jordan River, and now everybody heard it. This, is something that, this isn't something that happened a, a generation ago. It happened yesterday, this weekend, like this week, it, it just recently. So everybody's afraid, and this is really psychological warfare kind of. Everyone's really afraid. Oh, my gosh. What we heard about with the Red Sea just happened to us. The Israelites are here. God is Their God is giving the land to them and they're going to conquer us. So either you're going to be like Rahab and you're going to repent and repudiate your false gods and make a statement of faith in the one true God, Yahweh, who is God of heaven above and earth below. You do something like her or you're going to fight against Israel. And unfortunately, most of the Canaanites, the vast majority of them fight. There's a little story with the Gibeonites. We'll talk about them in the next lesson. So God's already preparing for victory. The Canaanites are profoundly afraid, just as Rahab said. Now it's even more so now that they've crossed the Jordan River. And now it's time to renew those covenants, like I said. All right, so the first covenant that Joshua renews is the most foundational. It is the Abrahamic covenant. So what happens here, let's go to verse 2, actually. Chapter 5, verse 2. 
At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel again a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth, and this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. It goes on to say that all the males that left Egypt were circumcised, but in verse 5, all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people that were born on the way, the wilderness generation, after they had come out of Egypt, they were not circumcised. And that seems incredibly strange. Why in the world were all of the Hebrew boys who were born in the wilderness over these past 40 years, why were they not circumcised? This is a huge, huge problem. So Joshua is going to obviously remedy this in preparation for Passover. In fact, here's a quote for you uh, from your commentary. It says, blame for this negligence rests with their parents, the faithless generation, the faithless Exodus generation. It is important to remedy this problem before Passover since the Paschal meal, which follows in verse 10, cannot be eaten by the uncircumcised. End quote. So that's the connection here. At the end of chapter 4, they cross the Jordan River. It's the 10th day. They select the lambs. But nobody can celebrate the Passover. And presumably they hadn't celebrated the Passover either in the wilderness, which I'll talk about in a second if I can remember. But uh, they hadn't been circumcised. And if you're uncircumcised, you cannot celebrate Passover. So it's really, really important to make sure they're all circumcised. And so it, this quote here says it rests with uh, their parents. The, neg the negligence rests with their parents. Here's another quote in your footnote that I uh, put in here for you as well from your Catholic introduction to the Old Testament. It says, It is hard to know what to make of the fact that the second generation of Israelites have not even kept, the, kept the basic requirement of the Abrahamic covenant. Although it reinforces the point made in the last chapter about the grave spiritual infidelity manifested by the second generation of Israelites to which Moses gave the book of Deuteronomy, end quote. So the point here with this quote is that, you know, the, par the parents of the second generation, the parents who died in the wilderness, they were gravely sinful. All right. They, in fact, they were condemned to die in the wilderness for their rebellion. And so Moses had a lot of problems with them. They were disobedient, left, right, and center. And if you remember the book of Numbers, it is a profound book of frustrations. They're constantly rebelling against Moses. And so part of their, I mean, it's a, in accordance to their nature, part of their rebellion is not actually circumcising their sons. Now, these quotes talk about the blame for the parents. I'm just going to add one interesting point here, which is I think maybe Moses is also to blame. Moses is the leader. He is supposed to ensure that they follow God's law. Granted, he had a hard time doing that. But he didn't ensure that those parents circumcised their sons. And it really recalls an episode, if you go back to the first chapters of Exodus, Exodus 4 to be specific. Moses is going back home to Egypt after God appears to him in the burning bush. And there's this weird episode there at the end of chapter 4 where uh, the angel comes to kill this quote-unquote him. Uh, because he wasn't circumcised. So Zipporah comes, circumcises Gershom, his firstborn son, and says, I'm a bridegroom of blood to you. You may remember that. Go back to Exodus 4. Basically, the point is Moses did not circumcise his own son. Right, the son that he had was Zipporah for whatever reason, right? When you're in Midian, do as the Midianites do. The Midianites don't circumcise their sons at eight days old. So maybe he thought it wasn't very important. He could put it off, procrastinate. But it is still in Moses's character to put off circumcision. He did it with his own son, and now he's putting it off with his own people. So I would totally say, yes, the parents are at fault, but it's interesting to reflect on Moses's involvement as well. He should have had them circumcised. Maybe he tried and they rebelled against him and he just gave up. I mean, that's, I suppose, possible if you're reading between the lines. But in any case, I think that's worth uh, meditating on. So they do circumcise all of these males. 
It's actually really kind of gross. It says here in verse 5 that they did this at Gibeath Haraloth. If you look at the little footnote down in your Bibles, it's literally the hill of foreskins. There were so many men who were circumcised, they made a giant hill out of it, right? And so they actually named the place the hill of foreskins. That's super gross, but it really just points to the fact how negligent the Israelites were, okay? And so now after this was done, we'll skip all the way down to verse 8. It says, when the circumcising of all the nation was done, they remained in their places in the camp till they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, this day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so they named that place Gilgal. Now we talked about how last week, or last lesson I should say, Gilgal has to do with that memorial, the stones, the 12 stones that they made a memorial. Gilgal means like a circle of stones. Your commentaries will point out that there's kind of like a double meaning here, a double entendre. It can mean a circle of stones, but it can also mean like the rolling away, galal, uh, gilgal from the Hebrew galal. It's the rolling away of Egyptian reproach. And it's all related. Like there's not contrary meanings here. So the stone, the place gilgal, it's a memorial for, it's a both end. It's a memorial for the crossing over the Jordan River, the end of the Exodus, and the end of Egypt's reproach. The exodus now is over. They're no longer in the wilderness. God has given them the land. The exodus is over. They have now stepped foot in the land themselves. Egypt's reproach is gone. And that's what the circle of stones that memorial memorializes. Okay, so that's the connection there. Alrighty. So keep in mind, circumcision is the fundamental Abrahamic covenant. If you're not circumcised on the eighth day, you are, this is the divine biblical pun, right? You are cut off from the people of God if you're not circumcised. That's God's pun, not mine. Uh, so you're cut off. And so now they are able to be reincorporated into God's people, right? Descendants of Abraham for the purpose of Passover. And that's what happens next. So verse 10. The sons of Israel were encamped in Gilgal. They kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at evening in the plains of Jericho. Okay, so chapter 5, verse 10 really synthesizes that. Here they, this is the first Passover, by the way, in the promised land. This is the third recorded Passover. The first is the original, back in Exodus, of course. Then there's another second Passover one year later when they depart Mount Sinai. And now, 40 years later, you've got the Passover that's celebrated here within the land. So this is the very first Passover within the promised land, okay? And of course, all the men had to heal, so you can't, you can't celebrate Passover if you're not circumcised. Uh, oh, by the way, that's one of the reasons why some commentators will point out um, you've got this delay from the 10th day to the 14th day. On the 10th day, you select the lambs. On the 14th day, you sacrifice them. Why such a delay? Why not just select the lambs and sacrifices that night? The answer for some is that if there's anybody within the camp who's uncircumcised and wants to participate in the Passover, they get circumcised, and then they have time to heal before they participate in the Passover, okay? So it's kind of like a last-ditch effort. Like, we've selected the lambs. Does anybody want to participate in this? Especially if you are a foreigner and you want to convert, then you have time to get circumcised and to heal up before you are incorporated into this great uh, event, the celebration of deliverance. This really, it's a todah sacrifice. It's a celebration of God's deliverance for the people. So in any case, that's kind of an interesting aside there of why there's a delay. Sure enough, all of the men, like the whole nation of males for the most part, have got to heal and they celebrate Passover here, okay? All right, they celebrate Passover. And then the next major event that happens in chapter five is the manna ceases. It says in verse 12, the manna ceased on the next day when they, the, when they ate the produce of the land and the sons of Israel had manna no more, but ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. 
All right, so the mana ceases. Could you imagine after eating mana for 40 years, especially if you were a child, you've left uh, Egypt as a child, and of course, therefore, you didn't die in the wilderness, but you've been eating manna for 40 years, and then now all of a sudden, the manna stops, and you get to eat of the produce of the land. Like That would be a great welcome change in your menu, right, in your diet, is finally we get to eat of the produce of the land. Well, you have to understand that the manna stops here. It doesn't continue on because the manna itself was a pledge, a fort- literally, right, a foretaste of the promised land. So once the promise is fulfilled, once God gives them the land as he promised, the pledge ceases. You no longer need that manna once you're now in the land. And that's what this quote here is saying. It says, quote, insofar as the manna tasted like wafers made with honey, it offered a foretaste of the promised land and its abundance of milk and honey. The end of the manna signals the beginning of a new era when Israel reaps the blessings of Canaan, end quote here. All right, so the man is this miraculous substance. We talked a lot about that in the Exodus Bible study. It was so miraculous. It was miraculous, of course, because it shows up with the dew of heaven in the morning. But it also, according to wisdom, it suited every man's taste. So if you kind of like this taste of honey, great. If it tastes like oil because you like that, great. Like it really adapted itself to your own preferences, which is amazing, right? It's a miraculous bread. Well, now it ceased because they're in the land. I will say one more thing about that in terms of typology. I didn't mention this in the Exodus Bible study, but the manna is a type of the Eucharist, of course, right? So we, Christians living in this life, we're in the wilderness journeys of life, the wilderness wanderings of life, and God sustains us with heavenly supernatural food, with the Eucharist. The Eucharist is the fulfillment of the manna. So while we are wandering this earth in the wilderness wanderings of life, God gives us a literally a foretaste of the promised land of heaven, communion with Christ. So once we get to heaven, Eucharist no longer is needed, right? Because once the promise is fulfilled, the pledge ceases. The Eucharist is a pledge. It is the beginning and the promise of our future full participation and communion with God and with Christ in heaven. So I've heard it once said before, it always struck me, I forget where I got this, but when you get up to heaven, <laughs> and you're seeing and you see Christ, you don't walk up to Christ and ask him, hey, uh, where's the communion line, right? I'd like, to, I'd like to receive the Eucharist. You don't do that, right? Because you're, you're literally right in front of Jesus, right? You have full, perfect communion with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Eucharist, the pledge, has ceased. All right, so that's a little parenthetical aside right there, just remembering the typology. That Joshua and his, and his people are in the land, the pledge ceases. Once we get to the promised land of heaven, the pledge ceases. We no longer have the Eucharist, okay? Because the Eucharist is for our wayfaring days here on this earth. All right, that's enough about that. So let's move on. The manna has ceased. But then something pretty cool happens. Joshua's hanging around, you know, Jericho, or right in front of Jericho in verse 13. He kind of looked up his eyes, it says, and he looked, and behold, a man stood before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but as commander of the army of Yahweh, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord bid his servant? And the commander said to Joshua, Put off your shoes from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. This is a really awesome little story here. So now what do we, what do we have? We have the renewal of the covenants. The people really have been out of communion to a certain extent with God because they hadn't been circumcised. They're presumably not celebrating Passover as well. They're just kind of traveling uh, through the wilderness, whining and complaining every step of the way. So now that they've renewed the covenants, now and, and only then does the commander of God's heavenly hosts show up. 
right? The angelic commander of the Lord's army visits Joshua. So it is interesting here because this teaches us that really God is the one who leads his people in battle. We're going to see that with Jericho here in the next chapter, obviously, right? God is the one who leads his people in battle. Israel must stay in right relationship with God and obediently cooperate with his graces. That's the big, big lesson there. And so our battle, you know, with our enemies, specifically our spiritual enemies, is not all on us. God helps us and God sends his angelic messengers, that's what angel means, is messenger, to assist us. We have our guardian angel. So I, I really like the typology here, but let me just share this other quote with you about how you've got really kind of the two arms, the two forces of God's army. Joshua leading the earthly army, so to speak, and this angelic commander leading the spiritual army, so to speak. Okay, and it says this, quote, The angel is to the hosts of heaven what Joshua is to the army of Israel, the leaders of the Lord's fighting forces. His appearance indicates that the seizure of Canaan involves an unseen dimension of spiritual warfare. End quote. That is, that is so spot on. There is this unseen element of spiritual warfare, of liturgical warfare. All right. So here, Joshua realizes that God is leading the army. And he removes his sandals. like He's in the presence of God, this angelic being here. So just like Moses had to remove his sandals, this is another point in which you see the parallel between Moses and Joshua. Joshua removed his sandals like Moses did. Well, what's the connection here? Well, in both cases, it's in preparation for battle, right? God called Moses out of the burning bush, told him to remove his sandals because he's preparing Moses for conquest over Egypt. That's what the plagues are, conquering Egypt and Egypt's false gods. So now here, Joshua is before God's presence on holy ground, and he must remove his sandals because he's preparing for conquest against the Canaanites. So both men stand before the presence of God, they humble themselves, and then they're getting ready for conquest. And I think that's the big takeaway point here. There's humility before victory. If you humble yourself before God, if you renew the covenants with God and stay in his good graces, in the state of grace we would call it, then you're going to have victory. Okay, and God will send His angelic hosts to help you. Right, that's so beautiful. We'll, t- we'll wrap all that up typologically in just a second. But before we do, who is this commander? Who is this angelic commander? He has got his sword, his sword drawn in his hand. He is the commander of the Lord's hosts. So some people will say it's Saint Michael. Saint Michael is the one who has his sword drawn because if you go to like Book of Revelation, Michael was the one who cast Satan out of heaven. After Satan rebelled and disobeyed God, Satan was the commander of the Lord's heavenly host. So that's who it is here. And so often you'll see St. Michael depicted with a sword fighting against Satan. And there's a connection there. So it could be St. Michael. And some people will say, well, not St. Michael. It's Israel's guardian angel. Because it's the consistent tradition of the church, based in scripture, of course, scripture and tradition, that we all have guardian angels. Every single individual person, every family, every parish, every city, every nation, Like God sends his angels. There's bajillions of gabillions of angels out there that protect us and guide us and help us to pursue the good and to avoid the evil. So this would be Israel's guardian angel. I suppose I would say they're one and the same, right? Uh, Obviously, we don't know for sure, but Israel's guardian angel is St. Michael. St. Michael is the leader of God's heavenly hosts, and therefore, St. Michael is going to protect God's people. And the same thing applies with the church. The church is the, the new Israel. It's, the church is God's people now since Christ. So St. Michael guards and protects us in a very special way. And that makes, that makes total sense to me. I mean, I, that's probably what I would bet money on. Uh, of course, we don't know for sure. So that's who it might be, St. Michael. 
helping Joshua lead the forces. Now, I kind of already talked typologically. I want to wrap this up, but I've talked, I was ahead of myself a little bit here and there. But it's really important for us as we apply this to our spiritual lives. Remember, I've said this over the past couple of lessons. Joshua teaches us so much about our conquest over our spiritual enemies, our conquest over sin within our souls. So in order to conquer our spiritual enemies, we must do like Israel does here. We must renew our commitment to God's covenant. What does that mean? It means frequent the sacraments. You got to frequent the sacraments regularly. Go to Mass daily if you can. Obviously, you must go every week, but go daily if you can and receive the Holy Eucharist, the bread of angels, as often as you can, like in a state of grace, obviously, with great devotion and with great prayerfulness. Receive the Eucharist. Go to confession regularly, not just once a year, but once a month, perhaps, you know, uh, or maybe once a week. If you really want to conquer those venial sins, you might, if you can, if you can, try to slip in once a week, but certainly once a month is a good practice. But you've got to renew your commitment to God's covenant, which is really expressed through the sacraments. You must be in a state of grace. And then and only then will you be able to cooperate with God's commands. And also, I would argue, cooperate with God's angelic commanders. See, our guardian angels are always trying to tell us things about how we can pursue God's divine will. But if we're not in a state of grace, if we're not kind of attuned to the spiritual you know, helps and assistance, we're not going to hear them. So after Israel gets right with God and renews the covenants, then St. Michael, I would argue, comes and helps them and directs them. And, and Joshua receives all of this with great humility. Same thing with us. You know, we stay in a state of grace. We renew our covenant uh, with God through the sacraments. And we can follow the holy uh, inspirations of our guardian angels. I think that's really beautiful and it's really helpful for us.